Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, go to Titus chapter 2. And uh, we will continue thinking about how uh, our, our personal lives are to be ordered as a result of the gospel. Uh, and so last week where we were thinking about what, what took place in the home um, in regards to how older men were to be characterized by and how younger women and younger men and older women were to be characterized by what was really a model for them. Uh, this morning we step into the marketplace and we consider now uh, really principally those who are in authority in the marketplace and those who are under authority in the marketplace. And I, I think that will make sense as we go through the text. But before we go any farther, would you pray with me? And uh, we'll ask the Lord to, to come and invade our time as we spend it in His Word here. God, we uh, desperately need You. We, we need You to help us make sense of Your Word, to understand it, to, uh, to give us ears to hear that we, that we may understand God, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to make sense of what you've written and, and see where it fits in our lives and what it is that you are calling us to. And so, Lord, I, just, I, I pray and I just want to yield this time this morning to you. It's your word. You, you've spoken. And so, God, I pray that you would give me accuracy as I speak, that my words would be guarded from error, that they, they would be... They would be in line with your word. And God, I pray that you would just stir in our hearts. And where there are areas of disconnect between what you say in your word and how we live, that you would be gracious to reveal those. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to draw near, to confess that, to repent of that, and walk in the newness of life and in the strength you provide. And so God, we pray that you would come and, and, and just invade our time this morning. And pray that your, your spirit would, would just come and do work, that he would do what I am incapable of doing, and that you would meet with us in a special way. And so Lord, we thank you for what Christ has done for us, for the very reason that we have to gather in his name, for the salvation that he has purchased for us. Lord, and we pray this in His good name. Amen. And so this morning we begin the transition from the, the home to the marketplace. And where we were last week, and really the big idea over these past several weeks, if not all of chapter 2, is that what you believe determines your actions. 
And your actions demonstrate your beliefs. And you don't necessarily have to know somebody very well. If you're able to observe their actions, you can begin to determine some things that they believe. Perhaps even those that you know well, if you begin to observe some of their actions, you might question some of what you thought they believed because the actions aren't lining up. And what you believe determines your actions. And your actions demonstrate your beliefs. And what Paul is writing to Titus and instructing him to do is go help these people of Crete understand how their actions and their beliefs should be in harmony. How there should not be a disconnect between the gospel that they would say they believe in and the very lives that they now are living. And if we're we're real honest, it's a tall order. Crete was characterized as evil beasts, liars, and lazy gluttons. And that was not a characteristic that Paul himself came up with. He was quoting a prophet of their own who had written those very words some 600 years before Paul showed up on the scene. So I mean, we're talking the better part of three times our own national history 600 years of being characterized as evil, liars, and lazy. Even the word that the Greek language uses for liar comes and is named from the island of Crete. They were so characterized as those that were dishonest that the very word used to describe liars was actually pronounced Kritso. You can hear Crete, Kritso. This was how they were known. This is a tall order. So Titus, you, you go and tell these old men how to be sober-minded, how to be dignified, how to be self-controlled, how to live in a way that accords with sound doctrine. Because all these men have ever known is how to lie, how to be lazy gluttons, and how to be evil. That's a tall order. Titus, you you help the younger men figure out how to be self-controlled, which even in our day today, that's a tall order. Titus, you help the younger women or you help the older women learn these things and be these things to train the younger women. And again, we're just back to this idea that what you believe determines your actions and your actions demonstrate your beliefs. And so last week, Paul had Titus giving instructions in regards to the home This morning, we step in now to the marketplace. And I want to just be fully honest with you. Verses 7 and 8 are written specifically to Titus. They are not written to you and I. This actually, this entire letter was written to Titus. And there are things that that Paul instructs Titus to do in the lives of other people, things to teach them. And so we can very easily go, well, if Titus was to teach the older men to be that, well, that should be a model of an older man. We can glean things from that. So what do we do with the fact that these next two verses are specifically written to Titus and you and I are not him? Well, I think we can look at the principle that Titus was to embody the principle that he was to follow, and we can glean some things from that. And we can see how that principle will, can and does apply to us even though we aren't Titus. 
our job may be a little different than Titus, but he was told as you go and engage in teaching, as you go and fulfill the duties that you have as a pastor where you're training elders and you're training individuals in the church, as you go and do this, this needs to characterize how you do it. And so the job may be different for us, but I think the markers that characterize how we do the job can certainly apply. So let's go to verse 7 together. We'll read 7 and 8 together, and then we will think about it, talk about it. We'll get down to 9 and 10 as well. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So I think seven and eight have to deal with those that are in authority. Those that are in authority, it, it, if you're a parent, it's quite frankly all of us that are Parents, some of you are in authority in positions where your employment has those that report to you. You oversee individuals, but those that are in authority, and Paul tells Titus to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now that word show that leads off verse 7, it means to cause them to to experience something. Paul's telling Titus, hey, these people in the island of Crete, they may not have ever experienced somebody living out the gospel, somebody living out the sound doctrine and seen it practically applied. You cause them to experience that show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus, let your works, which did not save you, but demonstrate your saving faith, let those works cause them to experience something they have never experienced before. Cause them to experience this gospel that you want them to place their faith and trust in cause them to experience this gospel they have placed their faith and trust in. And we're talking about an infant church here. Talking about a group of people that have confessed Jesus Christ as Savior and now begin to figure out what all of that looks like. In many ways, the church in Crete is very different than ours where we've got several thousand years of church history and godly men and women that have gone before and have influenced and left godly heritages and legacies that was not true for them titus was there and he was one of the very first on the ground in the door that was going to stand in marked contrast to all of the liars all of the evil beasts and all of the lazy gluttons and his job was to cause the people of crete to experience the gospel in powerful ways and to show himself as a model of good works. That word models, the word type. It's the idea of a die cast. And you could go to Will's factory down just a half a mile away. You could see casts that he has there where liquid metal is poured into these molds and out pops the part 
that they manufacture and sell. That's the idea. My grandmother grew up about a mile away from the Woodhaven stamping plant in Detroit. And I'm not going to even pretend to understand everything that goes on there. But what I know in a basic sense is that sheets of metal are put into a big machine. Some big mold comes down, stamps it, and you get like a car door out of it. And that's how they manufacture cars. And Henry Ford did tremendous work in, in modernizing all of that and with the assembly line. And so she lived just a mile from this plant where these things were stamped out. You had a mold, it was casted into a new sheet of metal, and what was just made looks exactly like what was made before, and exactly like what was made before, and so on and so forth. That's the idea. Titus was to stamp out elders. He was to stamp out godly older men. He was to stamp out godly older women. He was to stamp out godly young men. He was to stamp out godly young women. He was to be a model of what it looks like for your beliefs to determine your actions and your actions to confirm or demonstrate your beliefs. So you and I that are in authority, I think we principally have the exact same charge. We have the opportunity, if not even the responsibility to cause people in our lives to experience the gospel in such a powerful way that it puts flesh to a message. In Titus's work, in his teaching, he was to do so with integrity. He was to do so with dignity. In verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That refers to just daily conversation. The very daily conversation Titus has with those on the island of Crete, those in his church, was to be sound. Was to characterize the gospel. And so questions that immediately arise to this is do our lives demonstrate this very gospel we say we believe in for those of you that are in authority would your employees those that report to you understand that you are a model of christianity is there integrity in your work is there dignity in your work? Is your everyday conversation sound? Is it healthy? Is it uplifting? Does it edify? And we're told the reasons why at the tail end of verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I think this last statement is a tremendous one for a couple reasons. One, you're given the purpose and the reason for why integrity and dignity and sound speech and the idea of, of causing somebody to experience this faith you have 
You're given the reason for it so that an opponent may be put to shame. What does that mean? It means that somebody who wants to make an accusation against Christianity or against you is not able to point at you as exhibit A for why this thing called the Bible or the gospel cannot be true. And if they try... Your life has been so characterized as a model of good works that everybody around them is like, are you serious? Because I know that person you're talking about, and they act nothing like you have just accused them of being. But it goes a step further. Having nothing evil to say about us. Think about that last word, us. It's just Titus who's got boots on the ground. Paul's writing, but he decides to use a third-person plural pronoun to describe the response here. Would it not have made maybe a little bit more sense to say, hey, don't let them have anything evil to say about you, Titus. You don't want them to have anything evil to say about you, but he chooses to say us. And I think that's powerful because how you and I act often becomes a characterization of what other people believe about Christianity as a whole. And we get that into the reverse where the Westboro Bible Baptist fools will get put up on Fox News and somebody will get on and go, that's why we can't believe in the Bible. And we look at that and we're like, that doesn't really characterize us at all. But there is that gross misunderstanding at times and misapplication or characterization of Christians. There's some incredible things at stake here. It wasn't just Titus who would be the brunt end or the receiving end of an opponent. It was Christians everywhere. It was Paul and Titus. It was the rest of the believers. It may have eventually become even the elders in the island of Crete as well, perhaps elsewhere in the modern known world. There's a tremendous responsibility for those of us that are in authority. And I think the big idea to to really summarize what Paul is saying is that those in authority are to cause others to experience how the gospel transforms lives. You're to be able to say to an individual that you work with, hey, let me tell you about this gospel I believe in. Let me tell you what the Lord has done in my life. And and your actions are to, to validate that claim. What you don't want is that coworker, that employee to go, well, you say this, but then you do this because what we believed determines our actions and our actions demonstrate our beliefs. And those who are in authority are to cause others to experience how the gospel transforms lives. They're to show themselves in all respects as a model, as a type of good works. You're to be able to say, to those who follow you. You know what? You follow me in regards to living for the Lord. 
as well. That's a heavy weight. It's a heavy responsibility. It's, it's not one that we are going to be able to accomplish on our own strength. But I think that's the big idea that Paul is communicating to Titus, that you're to cause others to experience what this gospel does. You are to stand in such stark contrast to the prevailing cultural understanding of what Cretans look like and how they act that everybody stands back and wonders. And when you say, well, I believe in Jesus, they've now experienced what that saving faith does. If we're real honest, perhaps American culture is not that different than Cretan culture. We may not be lazy gluttons and evil beasts by and large, but there's lots of different ways that our American culture should stand in stark contrast to Christianity. You and I are to cause others to experience that, to see that contrast. Well, in verses 9 and 10, Paul then shifts and begins to talk about those who are under authority. And I want to spend a little bit of time here and hopefully uh, articulate some things that, that I, I trust will be helpful. But let's read the verses and then we'll hop in. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, I don't know what kind of translation you brought with you this morning. Some of us may have different words at the beginning of verse 9. Some of you may have the word bondservant. Some of you may have the word servant. What I read has the word slave. And I want us to consider, what do we do with this word slave? Because this, this is a powerful word. It's a word that, that causes a whole bunch of emotion for us as Americans because of our history. Certainly even this area where a battle to end slavery was fought in this area. But you even now have modern day slavery where it's not necessarily based on ethnicity, but you have human trafficking. You have people that are sold as sex slaves and other types of slaves. What do we do with this? Because the Bible doesn't seem to condemn it, certainly not in that verse. And if we went outside of Titus, you would not find a verse that says slavery is wrong. And it makes us wonder, and I think we should stop and ask the question, what do we do with it? Why does the Bible not condemn that? And so I want to step into that in our time remaining, hopefully to give you some explanation. I don't think we will solve everything. And for those of you that may struggle more so with this than others, I'm not sure I'm going to resolve all of your struggle. But I think there may be some helpful points of explanation along the way. It's going to be important for us to note that there's two really important words that are used in the New Testament. 
I guess there's a bunch of really important words, but in regards to slavery, there's two really important words. One is used here at the beginning of verse 9. It's translated as slaves, it's translated as bond servants, and it's also translated as the word servant. There's different translations for it depending on the context. Now, to be quite honest, the definition for slave and the definition for bond servant is identical. English translators choose bond servant over slave just because of our history. But the words mean exactly the same thing. It's the idea of somebody being the, the, the property and, and being the ownership of somebody else. That word is used 126 times in the New Testament. If you look with me at the third word in Titus 1 verse 1, very beginning of the book, you will see Paul a servant. Perhaps your Bible has a footnote there that will tell you that it maybe is bondservant or slave. It's the same word. So this word that is translated slave, bondservant, or servant is used in multiple ways and in multiple contexts. It's used in chapter 2 to speak of those who work for somebody else who may be considered the property of that individual. It's used in chapter 1 <coughs> by the Apostle Paul to describe his relationship with the Lord. And it is used that way by almost every New Testament letter writer. The believers who gathered in Acts chapter 4 to pray while Peter and John were in prison, they refer to themselves as slaves of God. The Apostle Peter refers to himself as a slave. Timothy is referred to as a slave of God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, refers to himself as a slave of Christ. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, refers to himself as a slave of Christ. Paul calls all of the elders slaves of God. The Apostle John refers to himself as a slave as well. So I, I, I mention that to note for you that this word that shows up there in chapter 2, verse 9, is used elsewhere and used to describe the relationship that these men believed they had with the Lord. So there was something about their understanding of what this word meant that allowed them and led them to apply this word to their own relationship with God and speak of it in the highest of ways. The believers gathered in Acts chapter 4 praying, there is the, the idea and the tone of there's no greater honor than to be considered a slave of God. And so this word can't just be blanketly defined by perhaps how we would because of our history in America. The second word, and I'm not going to pronounce it for you, it shows up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And it will be rendered something like enslavers. And what that word means is those who kidnap and sell people. 
that word is used and is specifically condemned alongside a whole list of other actions that are described as lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinful, unholy, and profane. So the idea of kidnapping somebody and selling them is completely, categorically rejected. So there's a difference. And how you understand slavery in the New Testament, by and large, is going to depend on where you focus the lens. And to be quite honest, scholars are in great disagreement over what slavery in the New Testament looked like. They're in great disagreement about it. So if you focus the lens on historical records about people who were abused, people who perhaps were chained, people who were beaten if they didn't obey, people who had, had just gross violations to their bodies committed, then you, you begin to understand slavery as, as something in the New Testament in the first century that perhaps wasn't what everybody experienced, but the exact opposite is true. If you went and you looked at the, the, the people who had good masters, who had people that, that took care of them, that provided for them and their family, that it was much more closely an employer-employee relationship, you could be led to conclude if that's all you looked at, well, that, this word slavery is not that big of a deal. And Scholarship, historical scholars are not in agreement with this. And we're not going to solve all of these things this morning, but there's some tension here about how you understand this. And what seems to be the, the case is that the understanding of this word, by and large, hinges upon the individual who um, was the quote-unquote master and, and how they treated those that were in their charge. Did they consider them as property to do with what they want, to beat them when they didn't obey, or did they treat them much perhaps closer to an employee-employer relationship? And so who were slaves? That's important for us to consider as well. Slaves were prisoners of war, and we already don't like that idea because in 2016, we don't really take prisoners of war in that sense. We're, we're not going to go to Canada and conquer them and bring all the Canadians down and put them to work in our fields. It's just not going to happen in today's world. But that was something that happened back in the first century. Slaves were indebted persons. You borrow money from somebody, you're unable to pay it back, you become their slave and because of your indebtedness to them. Slaves were Unfortunately, babies who had been left to die by their mothers through the practice of what is called exposure. This was a post-birth form of, a, of abortion where a mother had a baby, didn't want the baby, can leave the baby out to be exposed to the elements. The baby's going to die. I will be free of baby. Well, those babies were found. Those babies began to be cared for and those babies then began to work as they got older in the homes of those that began caring for them. Children born of female slaves would indeed become slaves. Slaves could be domestic servants. They could be farm laborers. They could be clerks, craftsmen, teachers, soldiers, 
managers. Some slaves were doctors. Some slaves were accountants. And it's, it's at that instance that, again, I think we're confronted with, it's just really difficult to understand what exactly went on. Because there are historical accounts of, of just gross abuses and stuff that is just downright evil. And then there are other accounts that read much more closely to an employer-employee relationship where slaves were given pieces of land to farm for themselves and their families and they would go to work and they would take care of their master's land and they would have the opportunity to take care of their land. Maybe not that different than you giving 40 hours to your boss and then coming home and mowing the yard. But it can't be all of those instances because there are accounts in history of where great evil was done. So why didn't God just abolish slavery or command that it be abolished? I think it's a fair question. And there's not really a good answer. The best possible answers that I have found is that slavery was so woven into the fabric of society that an outright abolition of slavery would have completely collapsed all of what they know about society and their economy and social structures. Now, that can be argued against because you can weigh the value of a human life above societal structures. We can sit back 2,000 years in the rearview mirror and, and argue against some of that, but that could be an explanation. It's estimated that one-third of the citizens of Rome were slaves. Another third had been slaves and had purchased their freedom. So you're talking about millions and millions of people. It's even actually also estimated that if there had been any revolution by slaves to secure their freedom by, by revolting, that they would have just been killed immediately. It's another possible explanation of why there's not an outright abolition called for slavery. What we do have in the scriptures, and we will look at this closely and quickly, what you do have is the seeds planted as a result of the gospel that begin to say this should look very different than it might have before. That this relationship between masters and slaves should be much closer to employer-employee than you are my property, you do what as, as I say. And there are lots of texts that we could go to. We're just going to look at Ephesians. I could take you to Colossians. I could take you to 1 Timothy. I could take you to Philemon, which is a letter written to a slave owner about a slave. But I think Ephesians summarizes for our intents and purposes this morning the most effectively. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. There's a command there. How are you to do it? You're to do it with fear and trembling. You're to do it with a sincere heart. You're to obey them as you would obey Christ. So the very action of working for your earthly master, for those that are believers, has been completely transformed to an act of worship. Do you see that? You obey them as you would obey Christ. He's going to further develop that thought as we go. 
Don't do it by the way of eye service. So not, just don't do it when they're looking. Don't do it just to please them. But as bond servants, there's that word again, that could also be put in slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Work has just been transformed into worship. Your work is to as the Lord, not as to men. Okay, well, I think there's a question that can be asked there. Perhaps Paul anticipated it. It's going to be answered in verse 8. But well, what, about, what about my master who's a jerk? Well, I think verse 8 begins to give some of that answer, knowing that whatever good anybody does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, whether he is a slave, or whether he is free. So your work is worship. And you working hard, you may not see earthly results for it, but God will pay you back, whether you are slaved or whether you are free. But, verse 9 now gives instructions to the masters. Masters, do the same to them. That's, that's tremendous. That's earth-shattering. That one statement completely unravels this idea that you are my property. I'm pointing at Mike, not my wife, just so we're clear. That you are my property. You do what I say. No, if, if he's to treat me a certain way, I'm to do the same to him. That has just completely put masters and slaves on the same playing field. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. You got somebody else to answer to. You're not the big man on the block because you've got a master and he's in heaven and there is no partiality with him what does that mean it doesn't matter if you are a slave or if you're a free or if a free man the Lord is going to take care of these things see how the very seeds to completely unravel this idea of owning people and commanding them to do things or, or threatening them has been completely, they've been planted to unravel this idea. So the Bible does not come out and expressly condemn slavery. But the very seeds needed to unravel this entire idea are planted as a result of the gospel. And it is these texts and others that have led men over centuries to fight for those who find themselves enslaved. And what we have in the New Testament, at least as the scriptures describe it, is much more closely resembling an employer-employee relationship than what you have maybe when you think of the word slave as American history would bring to mind. Even current day events would bring to mind. And so Paul writes to Titus and says, there's some instructions 
for those that are under authority. And here's what they're to do. They're to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. That means that they are not to skim a little bit off the top. They're not to take because they feel like they deserve more. They're to show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That word adorn means make beautiful. The reason Paul gives instructions to, I think, what we can understand as employees, those under authority, the reason why they're to be hard workers, the reason why they're not to skim off the top, the reason why they're not to be argumentative is so that they may make the gospel beautiful. And those under authority are to show the gospel as beautiful by how they work. So put that back into the context of Crete. If everybody was an evil beast, a liar, and a lazy glutton, and you now have somebody that's hardworking, somebody who's not skimming off the top, somebody who's not being argumentative, how does that not stand in stark contrast to everything else that is known by, about these people on this island. And by your hard work, by your attitude and your actions and your willingness to obey your earthly master, you make the gospel beautiful. And you and I who are under authority are called to do the exact same thing. We're called to work hard for those that we work for to make the gospel look beautiful. There's to be a difference in our actions as believers to the actions of those that are not. And we're to show the gospel as beautiful by how you work. Jesus said it this way, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's this idea that our actions or our beliefs determine our actions and our actions demonstrate our beliefs. And so we have to just pause and ask ourselves, is is the gospel at the center of, of, of first and foremost, our beliefs, and is that rightly informing our actions? Last week, we looked at very specific ways that older men and younger men and older women and younger women were to have their actions informed by their beliefs. Today, we've stepped into the marketplace and considered those who are in authority and those who are under authority. But the question still remains, is the gospel, is the sound doctrine informing your actions? Or is there a disconnect between how you act and the gospel you say you believe in? 
And so this morning we're going to end and sing the exact same song we sang last week. And the chorus is just perfect. Oh Christ, be the center of our lives. Be the place where we fix our eyes. Be the center of our lives. It's this prayer and we should sing this as a prayer that, that we would ask the Lord to be gracious to reveal where Christ is not the center where our actions are not demonstrating the beliefs that we would say we have. But even a step beyond that, those of you that are in authority, I think you need to ask yourself this morning, have I shown those in my charge? Have I caused them to experience the gospel in real, tangible ways? those that are under authority? Have my actions caused and made my employer see that the gospel is beautiful? And if you're going to answer no to one of those questions, that needs to be confessed, repented of, and then I would encourage you to begin planning to have what could be a difficult conversation with either those in your charge or the person you report to. I understand that perhaps coming to your boss and saying, I've I've been slacking off, I've not been working hard, it's probably not the best way to climb the corporate ladder. It's not very American. It's pretty biblical. If you're a boss, it's probably not very American to sit down with an employee and go, I've, I've not shown you the gospel the way I should, but it's biblical. So there's some takeaways that we've got to think through and process. And so as we stand and sing and sing this song as a prayer, I'd ask you to just invite the Lord to just come and do work in your heart where he needs to. Would you stand?